you take your seats, please turn your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5, verses 24 through 26 is our text this evening, found on page 975 of the Black Pew Bible, page 975, Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This last section in chapter 5 of Galatians, sets up two lists. Uh, Verses 19 to 23 uh, has two lists. One, miserable lists of the works of the flesh, verses 19 through 21. And one, desirable list of the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23. And as you look at these two juxtaposed, contrasting lists, I'm going to tell you, you don't want the first list. Who wants enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger? It's a description of a miserable life, one that's characterized by all that mess. And then, in contrast, does not every heart long for a life characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Who doesn't want a life like that? And so you see these two lives put up before you, and the question that ought to be coming to our minds if we're following along in Paul's logic is how. How do I become someone that grows the fruit of the Spirit rather than produces or works out the works of the flesh? Because obviously, one list comes very naturally. You know, uh, Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, etc. These things come find you. You don't have to look very hard for them. You know, j- just leave your garden untended and beautiful tomatoes don't come out of it. No, no one's searching the internet trying to figure out how to grow more weeds or to have more fire ants come into their yard. But how to grow fruit. Indeed, the fruit of the Spirit. How does one do this? This is what verses 24 through 26 show us. So very simply, I'll try to break it down as clearly as possible. How does the Christian grow the fruit of the Spirit? Number one, by belonging. Number two, by warring. Warring. Number three, by walking. By belonging to Christ, warring against the flesh, and walking by the Spirit. Taking each three of those will hopefully have a greater clarity on what it means and how we too might grow the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So number one, by belonging. It's right there in verse 24. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. It could more literally be translated, those who are Christ's or those of Christ. It's very much the language of union with Christ. This Great doctrine we've used to explain what it means to live according to the Spirit rather than the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit 
are by the Holy Spirit united, belonging to Christ, and whom all the promises of God have their yes and amen, from whom all the benefits of our salvation flow, our justification, sanctification, regeneration, etc. But we ought to see that the, the precondition or the prerequisite of being one who has crucified the flesh, which we'll come to in our second point, is being one who is Christ, who belongs to Him. And we ought to not read that too quickly because there's much to gain, I think, in considering to whom we belong or of whom we are. Other religions, other false gods, other functional idolatries uh, we could belong to. We could belong perhaps first and foremost in our hearts and minds to our city. I'm a Savannian. Or to our family. I'm a Shaw or I'm a Johnson. Or to our nation. I'm an American above all. Or perhaps to our college. I'm a Georgia Bulldog first and foremost. Or as often as in our culture we do, I belong to myself. I am me and I am my own. I'm my own man. Thank you very much. So there are, there are many rivals for whom you might belong to. You see, uh, who we belong to, uh, who really owns you, you might say, is what really gets your heart, whom you really love, who gets your effort, your energy, your thoughts, your prayers. That, you might say, is the thing you worship or the thing to which you belong. And thus, the call of the gospel throughout the whole of the Scriptures even as Joshua says to Israel, choose this day whom you will serve or to whom you will belong. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Joshua says. Or as Jesus says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. That is, we are not owners of ourselves. We must deny ourselves. We don't belong to ourselves. Or as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself anymore. He says, you've been bought with a price if you're a Christian. Or as Paul explains in Romans 6 or here even in Galatians 4, you either belong to one, another, or to one or the other, to the flesh or to the spirit, to the Father of righteousness, the Lord, or to the devil. Always the juxtaposition. It's either one or the other. You are either a member of the bride of Christ, and he is a jealous God, he allows no suitors. He is Lord, you see, and no one else. You see, because belonging in this way is, is a powerful thing. It changes everything. Whose you are tells you who you are. It provides focus, purpose, identity, direction. I very much you know, belonged to the football team uh, of our little Christian college outside Chicago. Uh, my whole life revolved around the practices and the meetings and the training and the games and and all those things that determined what I wore and who I hung out with and the food I ate. I, very, I, don't, I can't even imagine what college would have been like if I didn't belong to this, this thing that set my trajectory. It's kind of what I hope for even for my children, that belonging to the Shaw family will mean something. It'll, it'll have a culture about it. It'll give it a, a direction. My children will know um, downstream, of course, what the Bible says, why they were made, what they're for, all these things. See, see belonging... It gives us a direction, a purpose, a, a sense of strength. Belonging is deeply powerful. I, I love to take jogs uh, in the evening at Christmas time and to see the Christmas lights uh, in the neighborhoods. And um, 
It's, per, it's probably a little, perhaps a little voyeuristic, but I, I love to catch a family as I'm running you know, around dinner time, perhaps, or before or after dinner, um, sitting down at the table. You can see the, the home that's lit, and perhaps they're sitting there, and there's, it's very much a, a Thomas Kincaid vibe. It's not hard to come by this time of year. I, I do remember, uh, even as a freshman at college, a bit more than homesick, perhaps, jogging by houses, walking by homes at night, and seeing families inside, and Longing far worse, knowing that sense of home was lost, the sense of belonging that every soul has inherently. We know there is but truly one place to belong, one place our souls belong. And indeed, we are made for, verse 24, to be in Christ, to belong to Christ. But the point here is that there is a lordship assumed in verse 24. This is the prerequisite of fruit-bearing that is belonging. There will be no fruit if we are not tapped into the root of our salvation, from which we gain all that is needed for a life of godliness. Right? It's the presupposition of Paul's exposition. We are given the soil, the water, the light, all that's needed to grow, the identity, the purpose, the family we need, becomes a kind of greenhouse in which we might grow. Indeed, to belong to Christ is the prerequisite of Christian growth. And that right alongside that, we might say the, the very moment we first believe, we learn about not only our belonging, but secondly, in our point here, the second thing of we need to understand about how to grow the fruit of the Spirit by warring, by belonging, and secondly, by warring. It's there in verse 24. Notice that the crucifying is in the past tense. That is, this is one of those things that happened the hour you first believed. Not only were you justified and adopted and regenerated, but also your flesh was crucified. And as we've explained in previous sermons, the flesh in this context is that, that part of the heart, the desire factory that's working for the self. It's always churning, trying to get me what I want. It's the the me that puts me at the center of my little universe. And day one of the Christian life, you come off the throne of your heart, and your flesh, the old way, is crucified, and God himself comes on to the throne of your heart. And I might understand, it's like the first day of basic training. You're joining the army. I haven't joined the army, but from movies and such is what I understand. You get a haircut, and you get a new set of clothes. You know, the whole wardrobe that you've chosen yourself that reflects your style, that's all put out. And you get a new name. No longer are you Tim or Charlie or Alex, you're private so-and-so. You're in the army now. Such is, in a way, what it's like to follow Christ. The old you, the old flesh, the old me-serving life is gone. It's past. In the past tense, it has been crucified. And yet, we know from the Christian life uh, from experiencing it and from other passages throughout the Bible, that this crucifying of the flesh, it is both a once-for-all act when we first become a Christian, when we first belong to Christ, and we also know it's an ongoing thing we must be continually doing. Indeed, uh, we might understand uh, you, know, you are indeed married uh, legally when you come and you say, I do, and yet there is a sense in which you are more married, more deeply connected. There's a, a depth to it that grows in it. So, in the same way, I think there's something similar in our 
warring against our flesh. And I do say warring because it, there's a number of images, there's a number of uh, similar uh, imagery that the Bible uses in describing our war against the flesh. Consider Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So what is a sacrifice? Well, sacrifice, uh, you, know, you, you slaughter the animal on the altar and you light it on fire. That's what a sacrifice is. You know, Christ, when he is crucified, is a sacrifice of sorts. So that Paul is instructing us, Christians, to be those who present their bodies, not only once, but as it were, continually offering up our lives, our prerogatives, our ways of living unto him as an offering to him, as a sacrifice. Or as Jesus says, he who would come after me must take up his cross, crucifying, daily. Take up his cross daily and follow me. That is, there of course is a once-for-all crucifixion at the beginning of our flesh and a continual daily dying to my own self, my own flesh, my own prerogatives, and living unto Christ. Or as he puts it in Colossians 3.5, put to death or mortify therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, etc. Or as he says it again, Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die But if by the Spirit you put to death or mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. I hope hope you see the way in these different imageries, mortification, crucifixion, uh, living sacrifices, clue us into this larger uh, idea of what I think is making war on our sinful nature, making war on the flesh a continual seeking to, to fight the evil within that resides in us even after we have been regenerated and made alive in Christ. Indeed, Paul at the end of Ephesians describes to us the the armor of God, the armor the Christian needs to fight to make war on our flesh and the devil. See, our spiritual growth, we have to see clearly, is not only a passive belonging, but it is an active war-making. As the greatest of the Puritan theologians, John Owen, said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. I'm afraid that we so often do not take our warring against the flesh, warring against sin in our lives as seriously as we ought, and I'm afraid that's because we don't really treat sin for the danger that it is. We don't see sin for what it is. We do not see the the hell that it goes on for eternity, which... Sin is connected to, because if we did, if we knew about hell, if we knew that the weight of sin in our lives, we would be knowing. We'd be on the warpath always as Christians, against the flesh and the devil. Several of the commentators point out the way in which crucifixion, as Paul uses it in our passage, is a very useful image because it has certain characteristics that help illuminate, I think, what Paul's talking about here. It is both deliberate, agonizing, public, and slow. See, Crucifixion is deliberate. Jesus had to be found and tried and condemned. It involved soldiers and accusers and magistrates. So also crucifying your lusts, your sinful desires, your flesh, takes some decisive and deliberate action. We must be willing to slow down enough to do some detective work, to ask when we see the works of the flesh coming out of our our lives, 
why that's coming there, where it's coming from. Why are you so jealous of your sister-in-law? Why uh, do you hurt and grieve so at the state of your family or your job or your career? What is it that pricks your heart so deeply? What do you really want? Uh, When the young man turns toward pornography, toward sexual morality, why? What do you want? These are the questions you must be asking. You must be seeking out, deliberately bringing out and speaking to and crucifying Just a general guilty feeling, moping with shame, does no good. You see, crucifixion is deliberate. It's also, secondly, crucifixion is agonizing. That was the very point of crucifixion, or the most painful way to keep someone alive and kill them at the same time, is what the Romans put together. And indeed, crucifying or making war on the flesh should be agonizing, and often, of course, it is. No doubt uh, we have been called, as we've read, uh, to suffering, to be carrying crosses and offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Those are not comfortable images. No, it's less than comfortable to get serious about your sins and question them and begin to kill them at the heart, at the motivational level, to, to cut them off at the root, or it was to, to, to pluck the root of those lusts out of our hearts. It's deep surgery, we might understand. It can be painful to be honest with yourself about your sin. It can be painful to see the depths of the selfishness and delusion. We indeed are, I think in modern times, especially masters of misdirection, of coming up with great excuses about what my dad said a long time ago that makes me sin the way I do now, or, or that time my aunt said this or that to me, and that's why I'm like this. We have all kinds of psychotherapeutic explanations for our besetting sins. And Paul is pointing out the nature of the Christian life can be agonizingly humiliating as we deal with our deepest desires and motivations. This deliberate crucifixion is agonizing. Thirdly, it's public. This is the other main thing about crucifixion. Those bodies were meant to stand as a kind of billboard outside the city. Do crime here, do time here. The Romans are in charge. You cross Rome, you end up here. That's the kind of the idea. Uh, they're, they're crucified naked for the shame of it. So often in crucifying the flesh might not to be, need to be public for all to see, but the more light you bring to a temptation struggle, so often the less power the temptation has. When the sin struggle is only in your own head and in your own heart and you're all tied up in knots, Uh, There's much uh, persuasive power to your temptations that's lost when you bring that temptation out to the light. When the temptation is brought to the light, the ridiculousness of it can often become apparent. Indeed, Martin Luther is famous for speaking to the devil, to speaking to his temptations. Famously, in Wartburg Castle, as he's working on the German translation of the New Testament, he throws his inkwell at the devil. I don't think Luther was crazy. I, I think he was right often just praying out loud, even as a temptation comes, seems to, to lessen the power the devil has upon us. James 5, 16. James says, confess your sins to one another. Bring them out to the light. Tell someone. Meet with a pastor. Meet with a trusted friend. Bring them out to the light. That which is secret can own what is secret. But so often, 
The temptations are shown for what they are when they're brought out to the light, shown to be simply nothing but shadows. Indeed, crucifixion is deliberate, agonizing, public, and slow. And so often, crucifying your flesh is slow. It's less like a once-for-all battle and more like a war in which battles are won and lost, in which you take three steps forward and two steps back. So we all have besetting sins, sins that are deeper, that need years, perhaps decades of rooting out, such as the normal Christian life so often. As Paul says, Hebrews 12, 1, run with patience the race that is set before us. These are the first two building blocks of how to grow, by belonging, and secondly, by warring, by making war on your flesh, and thirdly, by walking. Look at me at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And we, we mentioned last time about the nature of the fruit of the Spirit, I, trying to, you know, make it rhyme all my things about the flesh, I said it was dual, meaning it was both passive and active. How, how do you grow by the Spirit? How do you produce flesh? Well, in some way, it's the Lord producing it. It's amazing. It's flowing through me. It's something passive. There's a belonging. Indeed, verse 25a, if we live by the Spirit, there's something passive there. I'm not trying real hard to live. I mean, it's different times of life, maybe you are, but living is basically passive, but walking is definitely active. There's a deliberateness to our walking with the Spirit, and, and fruit-producing, fruit-bearing is both passive and active. And, and I do like in this passage, there's a lot of passages in the Bible that speak of, uh, you know, running the race and such. I, I like walking. You know, going out and running a 5K is difficult, but keeping in step, one step at a time, going on a walk with the Spirit, that's something I can manage day to day in my life, I think. We ought to notice, too, the way that verses 24 and 25 are, are the equal opposites. Verse 24 is about mortifying the flesh. Verse 25 is about vivifying the Spirit. Verse 24 is about putting things to death, the flesh to death. Verse 25 about putting things to life. Now, what does this mean practically to walk by the Spirit? Remember, the Spirit in this context is the Godward directed heart. It is the part of us that's been born again, the seeking God's glory rather than my own. It's in contrast to the flesh. It's that part that produces fruit, fruit that aren't necessarily actions, but are attitudes. And so that we're not talking so much about strategies of how to read the Bible more and how to get to church on time, but of course, those may help. We're talking about how to orient our hearts, how to stir up Love in my heart for God more than me. How do I do that? How do I love God more? That's the question. If we know how to love God more, if we get to our hearts to enjoy Him, this is what will produce the fruit of the Spirit. So how do we do it? And I, I think it's as simple and yet as complicated as one single word, worship. The way to orient your heart towards God is to worship Him, to worship, worship, worship on your own, in the home, and here, private worship, family worship, church worship. I do think this is the overwhelming biblical instruction and even the intention of the Bible to bring us to worship. Moses tells the people of Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 7, 
You shall teach them diligently to your children. That is the Torah, the law of the Lord. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. It's what the Psalms are for. They are for singing and meditating and and praying and reading and memorizing, massaging in the heart in the way it should go. So often, getting your heart to love God can feel like trying to get an egg an egg to stand on edge. It wants to fall over, or, or trying to get your compass to work in the Adirondacks. I don't know if you've ever been to the Adirondacks of New York State, but there's magnetic field issues, and the compass doesn't always easily point north. It's uh, the field's all messed up. So often that's what life can feel like. I want to worship God. I want to be drawn to Him, and yet it's hard to get the, the arrow to go in the right direction. Well, the whole of the Christian life comes to this thing, orienting our hearts towards God through worship. Paul in Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise or worship, think about these things. That is, use your mind to steer your heart. So often we can do it backwards. Of course, this is what walking by the Spirit means. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit but to unite us to Christ? For what? To take us to Him, to know Him, to worship Him as we were made to do. To walk by the Spirit is to live a life of worship. And perhaps you're saying, all that worship, you know, uh, that sounds rather monastic. You know, the kind of things uh, monks and nuns do all day. And I'll say, that's exactly right. That's what the Reformation did. They knew what a truly pious Christian life ought to look like, and they hoarded it it off into a, a monastery. No, the Reformation brings the work of the monastery into the Christian home so that we too are always praying, always singing songs. Indeed, as Paul says, praying continually, seeking to teach ourselves and our children and all those around us the very thing for which we are made, the way to produce fruit in our lives by the worship of God. This is how to grow. This is how fruit comes by belonging to Christ, being rooted in Him, by making war on your flesh, that is, on your selfish desires, and by walking by the Spirit with continual worship punctuating your life. See, I do think that so often the problem of modern life is that we tend to do the reverse. We tend to put to death the Spirit by continual busyness, entertainment, any other thing that distracts us from the main thing of worshiping God, and we tend to walk by the flesh. Isn't that what the world tells us to do with all its marketing campaigns, to do what feels good, to you be you, let it go, let it go, don't hold it back anymore, to treat yourself? No, to grow means, even as Martin Luther put in the first of his 95 theses, the Christian life is a life of continual repentance of stopping in the way of walking in the the works of the flesh and orienting the heart towards Christ. There is no living the Christian life or being a true Christian without an intensity about this, about war-making. We're surrounded, no doubt, by friends and neighbors who claim to be Christian and yet are far from making war on their flesh 
and or orienting their heart towards the Lord. They might be good conservative people, have high moral standards, all that stuff, but they, if they claim Christ, have no part in him if there is not this kind of intensity, an intensity to the level of crucifixion of the flesh. Indeed, in our own church, in our own lives, the standard set before us of crucifixion of the flesh cannot be overstated. And indeed, we are called to bear the fruit of the Spirit. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Father, even now as we turn towards your table, I pray that we would survey the wondrous cross, that we would die to ourselves, we would pour contempt on our pride, that we would turn from our fleshly desires and turn to live unto the way of the Spirit, unto the worship of Christ. Father, make us holy even as you are holy. Oh Lord, we fall short. We need your help. I pray that even we as a church, its ministers, its deacons, its elders, its officers, its women, and its children, all of us, O Lord, might be fruit bearers, continually known for the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithless gentleness, and self-control. Father, help us to repent of the, the works of the flesh. And O Lord, we pray that you would bless our nation that you would give us uh, leaders we do not deserve. Father, ones that are wise and full of integrity, ones that fear the Lord and will direct our nation into the way of righteousness and, um, and blessing. Father, we pray for our missionaries. We pray for those Christians that are persecuted. We pray, that, O oh Lord, that you would work mightily on their Sabbath day to strengthen them, give them rest, Bring growth to their sowing of the gospel seed, we pray. And Father, we pray for our own sick and suffering. You know the weights of every heart. You know the pain. And oh Lord, may you bear the pain with them. May they know your nearness. May they know your healing hand. May you bind up what's broken, oh Lord, we pray. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.